Director Ken. Um, tonight I'm very much standing in for our President Susan Sontag uh, because the notion for this series of uh, presenting to you literary magazines in the sense from the inside out, since we usually approach them from the outside in as it were, and they're very much important part of our lives. The notion was her idea. And uh, it was also her idea to lead off with presenting <coughs> you. Uh, we hope to have present two to three magazines a year. We certainly intend to continue in 1988. So this is an inaugural evening. I'd like to introduce to you the editor of Three Penny Review, Wendy Lesser, who is in the middle with appropriately enough with stars. <laughs> and I'd like to give you the most recent news first, which is that she has a book coming out shortly. When do you want to do that? Oh, right now. Called The Light Below the Ground, The Saber and Saber. It is a nonfiction work which is a literary and cultural history of the underground. Uh, Wendy Lesser calls it an eccentric study. <laughs> and it is meant to be read metaphoric as well as real and factual. Um, Wendy is also, well, firstly, she is a second generation Californian, uh, which is of interest to us New Yorkers. Uh, it is, in a sense, coast to meeting coast. Uh, she, however, did leave California to go first to Harvard and then to Cambridge and then return to take her PhD at Berkeley. Um, I think that now um, I would like to turn it over to Wendy, who was started in 1998 years ago, and she will present the magazine.
show in Paris that it was like that. I had done a little guest editing on other small publications there. And I foolishly thought that this was a simple thing to start a quarterly magazine. I launched into it in total ignorance. Starting, I, um, I stole the theater advanced critic from the San Francisco Review book, Irene Oppenheim. And once I had gotten her over in my camp, I felt that I had a solid core start with it. the first issue of the magazine, which you're welcome to look at when this is over, looks a little different. Basically, it's recognizable, but uh, it's populated mostly by articles by myself, my mother, who is a writer, Irene, and various <laughs> friends and relations. And then it has grown into what it is now after the 31st issue with articles by Elizabeth Hardwick and Leonard Michaels and Maurice Grossman, who is unfortunately dead, but has written this wonderful memoir before he died. Or the next issue, which will feature, the one that's coming out in December, will feature Susan Sontag on Italian photography, John Berger on credibility and mystery in language, Robert Hass on Chekhov, um, poetry by Tom Gunn, uh, Gary Soto, Sandra McPherson, short stories by three young writers all in their 20s. I don't think to be one of these editors who insists on publishing people in their 20s, but I did find three good stories by people who haven't published much. And that uh, an interview with Ernesto Sabato, an Argentine writer who you've all undoubtedly heard of. So that's, uh, that's the next issue. As you, you can see, the format of the magazine tends to stay the same for issue to issue. A number of uh, poems, a few short stories, and essays on various topics in performing arts <coughs> and literature. Um, the kind of article the Three Penny Review publishes and the, the editorial policy and what's special about writing about magazine, I think the writers can tell you better than I. What, what's special about writing about for me is that nobody else tells me what to write since I'm the editor. And that, that's all I can say. So instead, I'll, I'll spend a few minutes telling you about why Penn was interested in this question, actually, why has a three-penny review survived when a lot of small magazines die? And ironically, I think it survived because it's small. That is, um, it, didn't, it didn't have a lump of money behind it to begin with. It doesn't have university backing or an angel, somebody's personal wealth. It limped along for the first year on the profits from a consulting business that I was involved with with my former business partner who's sitting here in the first row. And we, um, we were just earning enough money to get by and do a little something extra. And I put my little something extra into the magazine. But it was really quite limping. And by the end of the first year, it was ready to collapse, except we then got three crucial grants from the Hewlett Foundation, the NEA, the National Announcement of the Arts, and CCLM, the and that kept it going into the second year. And the mythology is that once a magazine has been going two years, then it can keep going. And I believe this mythology, and so it works. And um, the writers were all who we acquired rather quickly. By the second issue, we had Steve Washerman, who is here, and who uh, became a consulting editor and helped me acquire other important writers, John Berger, by about the end of the first year, we had Gordy Dahl writing for it. We had Paul Bowles writing within the second year. And so people began to flock to it. Because it was poor and tiny, they wrote for it for nothing. And they now write for it for almost nothing. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't pay to write for a three-minute review. And 
it's very efficient to run a magazine that only one person does the name work on. I have all these other people helping me on a volunteer and part-time basis, but essentially I make all of the advertising decisions, the production decisions, the distribution decisions. I don't have to hold committee meetings. And it also means that the people out there who subscribe to it, and there are now about five or 6,000 regular paid subscribers and bookstores and libraries on top of that, those people have a feeling of connection with the magazine that I think they don't have with a larger one. I'll, I'll give an example. In January, in January, I send out all the renewal notices. I have an assistant who steps an into an envelope, but then I receive them as they come in and file them on the computer. And I receive back in the mail a non-renewal, essentially, with a note on the back saying, I like the magazine, but I'm a farmer from a very tiny town in Missouri. It's been a very poor year for crops, and I just cannot afford to subscribe to this magazine anymore. And this touched me, especially since Danny Wolf had written about the plight of farmers in Three Penny Review, and I was therefore fully educated on the topic. And I, I wrote the mail letter saying, you have enough to worry about, and you shouldn't be worrying about subscriptions, have a free to your gift subscription. And last week, I got back a letter from him with a gift subscription that he was paying for for somebody else in New York, as a matter of fact. And he said, it's been a great year. We've had the best crop we've ever had. <laughs> and he said, I, I, I canceled a dozen magazines in January, and I only got a personal reply from you, and I remembered it. And these are the articles I've liked over the last six months. And he proceeded to detail in incredibly intelligent and scholarly fashion the articles he had liked and why he had liked them. And therefore, I really like my friend in New York today. Thank you. So there's a sense in which you know, it's all a little being ground out of a black box in my Berkeley apartment. But it's very moving for me to have this kind of contact with the readers out there, too. It's all, it, and that feeds back into the magazine, I think, and it gives it energy to keep going. The magazine is, as I said before, poetry and fiction, as well as essays, but we're going to focus on essays tonight, because I think that the one thing that's interesting about the magazine is that I get people who do other things to write essays. Um, just among the people who are here tonight, Daniel Wolf is a poet who has published poetry in the Three Penny Review, but also writes essays for me. Irene Oppenheim is a playwright who, who writes theater, uh, dance, and general essays for me. Elizabeth Carpick, as you all know, is a novelist as well as an essayist. And Mindy Aloff is a poet as well as a dance critic. And John Galassi is a poet as well as an editor and critic. But all these people I have forced to read from their essays tonight. Um, and uh, I should say two things before I further open it up to them. Things that the, the writers told me beforehand they were interested in hearing about, thought you might be interested in hearing about. One is whether we have discovered anybody. It seems to be a sensitive one to hear about little magazines because the, the reason that's always given for allowing little magazines to survive these days is that they nurture along the talent in its early years and then it goes out and becomes. I think that that is, of course, not the only reason why the magazine should survive. And I think that the fact that we have continued to publish writers who were along in their career but not wildly successful and not well known is one important thing that the magazine does. Not so much discovering people, but keeping them in print later in their career. 
safe. And some of you may, I mean, I didn't discover it. You know, Random House discovered it, but I um, published his first published poem, which appeared in the second issue of the Three Penny Review. And then he went on to write The Golden Gate, that novel in Christian verse, created a big success. Another writer who appeared very early in her career in the Three Penny Review was Elizabeth Allen, who went on to publish short stories and a novel, which was not and published in the New Yorker. And the third one I'm very proud of is an older woman named Mary Ward Brown from Alabama, who published, I think, two of her best stories in the Three Penny Review, and those stories were included in the collection that last year won the Penny Faulkner Award. So uh, we have had our discoveries, and there are others I haven't mentioned, because people, I just don't know who's saying this and who's not, right? People who started with Magnus have gone on. And then the other question the writer thought might be interesting is why it's called the Three Penny Review. It's called the Three Penny Review because in Joseph Biden fashion, I stole the name from the first all threat, the Three Penny Opera. And I wrote a little editorial about this in the first issue, but it, the notion had to do with a magazine that uh, bridged the gap between politics and art, but always erred on the side of art. And so that if, if it ever came to the crunch, um, a, a poli the political line was thrown to the side, and there is no real political line to the Three Penny Review, I think, but, but there's kind of belief in the background that politics are important and worth talking about in, in a literate and interesting-to-read fashion, you know, for George Orwellian or Graham Greenian fashion, and so I do try and get some kind of political article with politics being very broadly defined, not electoral in every issue. So that's about all I have to say. You're welcome to ask any questions at the end, but I do want to turn it over to the writers now and have you hear from them what three penny review is like. Uh, I'm going to introduce them to you in the order of their connection with the magazine, and that's the order in which they'll read to you. So this Irene Oppenheim will start. And Irene uh, has been writing the magazine since the first issue. As I said, she's a playwright and a critic who has written for the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times and Arrival Magazine and various other publications. And she used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area with me, uh, with all of us who remain there, but she has since moved down to Los Angeles, which is our loss, but her games and lots of lively things are going on in Los Angeles. So Irene. <coughs> I'm going to begin uh, by reading uh, from one of the ongoing series on June 6th. Uh, is this one? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the ongoing series that I'm doing on the Street Penny Review and the theme of, uh, of it not paying too well. I think we started off uh, by earning nothing. I think in the third year we went up to uh, uh, $25. Uh, very equitably distributed. I always like that every writer gets the same amount, no matter what their obscurity or I spent recently as a waitress in, 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 in 
And in September of 1985, I needed a job that would give me some regular income for a few months. I hadn't worked as a waitress for more than a decade, and at first didn't consider that a possibility. But as I searched for more demure employment, I found that one after another of my interviewers would glance at my resume, sadly mumble something about all that writing, and proceed making as much eye contact as I commit to ask sincerely about my intentions, naming anything less than full commitment a form of deceit. Unable to assuage their concern with a convincingly forthright response, I soon found myself applying for work at Cantor's, a sprawling 24-hour-a-day Jewish, though non-kosher, bakery delicatessen and restaurant, which for the past 45 years has been dishing up Kishkin knishes in the Fairfax district of Los Angeles. I knew that neither of my most recent waitress references would check out. Herbs of Herbs Hamburgers in San Francisco had thrown down a spatula some years ago and uh -huh. gone to work in a hardware store, while the Sand Dollar Cafe in Stinson Beach had changed owners so that no one there would remember just how deftly I could sling hash. I told all this to Jackie Cantor, who in her early 20s is among a number of Cantor relations working in the family business. She hesitated, but I was hired anyway. While I don't wish to discredit my powers of persuasion, getting hired at Cantor's was hardly a difficult affair. The help-wanted sign in Cantor's front window was a faded, permanent fixture. <laughs> and, in two months, and in the two months I ultimately worked at the restaurant, the volume of employee comings and goings was never less than impressive. There were, however, exceptions to this transitoriness, and some among the large Cantor crew had been with the restaurant for 10, 20, or even 30 years. Pauline had been working at Candor's for 25 years and was the only one of the waitresses left who had her name machine embroidered into her uniform. <laughs> the rest of us were given pins with our first name punched out on a black dino label. But Pauline's was sewn right in, so he knew she represented a different, less transient area at the restaurant. You could tell by watching her, too, by the deliberate way she moved, that this was a place she was intimately familiar with. Only one part of the counter was open in the morning, and it sat around 14 people and included as part of the station three adjacent two-person booths, as well as any takeout coffee orders. Almost everyone hated working the counter because the turnover could be impossibly fast and the tips were always small. On the other hand, the counter didn't involve as much running around as the other stations, and Pauline preferred it. She'd move as though she were doing a little dance, reaching toward the coffee machine and then the toaster and then scooping up packets of strawberry jam. Strawberry was the only jam flavor Cantor served was a steady elegance that belied her girth, a factor substantial enough to make it virtually unfeasible for both of us to work behind the counter at once. <laughs> Pauline always was always glad to see me, for the half hour's rest I represented would be the longest break she'd have until getting off work at 2 p.m. I liked Pauline, too, and we got along well, but the counter was another matter. Generally, two kinds of people showed up at the counter, those who were alone and in a hurry to get somewhere else, 
and a group of regulars whose time, for whom time was not a consideration. This latter group was dominated by retired men who met at Cantor's punctually each day to have windy discussions, which would begin focused on a single topic, such as how people on welfare should be prevented from buying lottery tickets, and that would gradually merge into a broader lament about the disintegration of the neighborhood, the city, the nation, and onward. From my standpoint, both these countergroups meant trouble. Those who were alone tended to be impatient, while those who came in every day expected special treatment, which included remembering details about their preferences, water without ice, or a cherry danish heated with soft butter on the side. And they'd become belligerent if these idiosyncrasies were forgotten, or if they felt some mere counter-itinerant were getting better service. <laughs> but there were other regulars, too, lonely souls who were not part of the clique. As you stopped for a moment to write out their check, they'd start to tell you about painful cataracts and distant children. I remember one woman who liked her single piece of rye toast burnt almost black. She'd occasionally whisper so that I had to bend down first to hear her, that she was short of cash and would ask to borrow a dollar from me to pay the bill. I'd always do it. And next day, the loan would be stealthily but triumphantly repaid. The dollar slipped into my hand or pocket with a conspiratorial smile, as though this act of trust and complicity had secretly bonded us together. That's and I have uh, three questions here that I'll, I guess I'll deal with uh, about the three penny review. Uh, how I got started with I had been a uh, dance and theater critic in the San Francisco Bay Area for about seven years. And I found, although my readers didn't seem to be bored, I, I was boring myself. And, uh, and I found that it was extremely difficult to break out of that mode, that once you had were identified as a critic, as a dance theater critic, people were an arts writer, I did some writing on arts and economics, it was very difficult to write anything else. Would only send you books like murder on the point. You know, or something. <laughs> and they, they would never give you, you, know, you could write them that you're interested in Eskimos, you're interested in politics, but they'd only send you uh, uh, things like the next uh, crisis in the ballet world. They wouldn't, they wouldn't send you other things. And I think one of the important things to say about the three penny review is a phrase that Wendy used about all of the writers represented here, and that is the as well as phrase that all of us as a place to, to branch out, to experiment, to stretch ourselves. I mean, this is the kind of piece I certainly wouldn't have written for, for any place else. And I've written about many things. I've written about uh, the relationship of the Empire Strikes Back to a mass called Mid-Cult. I've uh, written uh, more intellectual pieces on, on Chekhov. I've written about uh, Elvis Presley and Bruce Springsteen as working class heroes. And, and just uh, mostly to, just because these were topics that I was interested in and wanted to explore in more depth and I wanted to understand my own feelings about them. And I think that that is the real, uh, for me, the real merit of the Three Penny Review. And I have, uh, since I've given the <coughs> endless subscriptions to libraries, to friends, anybody's getting married who has a birthday, who knows me, or mitzvah, they all get Three Penny Reviews. And it's a very selfish thing because for me it's a 
extremely important that spot. And I have this. And even as we were having dinner before, I was saying, when you have this vague idea of something I'm interested in, and she nods and says, well, we'll work on it. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's extremely valuable. You don't get that very often in this world, yet, or in the writing world. You, get, you send out pieces, or you have people assign you pieces, and they're very limited. Uh, so I think I've answered my second uh, question, which why is it different than other magazines? Because other magazines tend to typecast you very quickly. You, know, you write one piece on television, you're then their television writer. Uh, you write, uh, you know, whatever you have to write on. I know in the uh, Los Angeles area, I've been trying endlessly to uh, get published in the um, Los Angeles Times book review, but they can't quite categorize me. Every time I send them my resume, they they send it on to the dance critic, and uh, they just they just can't quite pay what I want to do. I don't have enough academic credentials for them to give me books on, on history, for instance, even though I'm interested in history. And being a generalist in this particular writing world is, is not something that's very saleable, and uh, you can tolerate that, which I think is extremely valuable. As to its editorial policy, I think one of the things that I find endlessly attractive about is I never can figure it out. I have, I have no idea. I think that Wendy puts together the magazines the way somebody puts together a good meal, and she kind of sees what ingredients come in, and she kind of gives you a meat dish and a side dish, and, and, and I like that. I mean, it's endlessly surprising to me. I'm never quite sure what she's up to, and I think that the fact that I don't quite understand it keeps me interested in writing for it and keeps me exploring different topics that might be interesting to her. And uh, I'm going to end there. And if anyone has any questions, Maybe not for any direct 
purpose, but just to have an indirect sense of, of what people are, are uh, thinking about. And I have to say that uh, the three days review is one of the most in interesting indexes that I have found uh, for getting a sense of what uh, thoughtful people have discovered or thinking about perhaps what writers from uh, other cultures say that uh, people have discovered, maybe not on an immediate timeline, but reaching back into some pocket of their own interests. Or it's so that it's a very, uh, very, very unusual thing. I don't think that's true of any major magazine in the United States. The major, so-called major magazines have, have much more of a, uh, an agenda uh, trying to cover what they see as major, what, uh, what they feel needs to be covered or discussed. Whereas Wendy's thing is much more of a potpourri. She, she sort of, uh, she's sort of a um, gatherer of, of what other people have have sent to her one way or another. And so there's, there's, this, there's not this kind of uh, uh, editing out process that Irene uh, is talking about, <coughs> where editors assume that they know what is important and, and they uh, direct things in, in a kind of uh, exclusionary way. Three Penny is much more eccentric than that. And that's, that's its greatest uh, quality, in my opinion. Uh, I think Three Penny works because it doesn't aim at being uh, professional in the sense of uh, covering all the, covering certain bases. It doesn't. Uh, you know, I don't. My feeling about it is that, the, that when I look at this, this is not being put together by somebody who's interested in selling X number of copies or uh, uh, covering his or her ass with this or that uh, uh, clique. Uh, it's not interested in money. It's not interested in being in or anything. It's just interesting. And that, that's the thing about it that I think is great. I don't always like everything in there, um, but why should I? I? I am always, my curiosity is peaked a great deal by it. So I, I, I think it's one of the best magazines in the country. And of course, one of the reasons I think it's the best is who else would publish an essay about a weird poet like Nino Campana? <laughs> <laughs> so, Wendy wants you to read part of it, so I'm going to read it. They're all pretending to be so obedient, but they're not like this. This was a, this is, I'm just going to read a few uh, paragraphs from this uh, piece that <coughs> it's actually, a, it was an introduction uh, to a translation of modernist poet that uh, Charles Wright uh, did that was published in the Neil Translation Series. And uh, 
case in Italian poetry comparable in some ways to what Rambeau is for the French or Hartcrane for our own tradition. As the critic Emilio Cecchi wrote, he passed like a comet across the firmament of Italian letters, leaving it astonished, though finally more or less unchanged. So idiosyncratic and eccentric was his contribution. Campana appeared in the midst of the great political, social, and cultural turmoil of the turn of the century in Italy and throughout Europe. And in his own peculiar way, he absorbed and expressed the multifarious influences of that moment, including symbolism, the Italian twilight, and futurism, as well as Walt Whitman and Graham Poe and Nietzsche. Out of all this, and from his own personal turbulence, he forged a powerful, obsessive song violent, pure poetry of undirected and thus unsatisfiable desire and need, which has a visionary, even hallucinatory intensity. Uh, the continuous, almost undifferentiated pian lament that runs through the county Orphanji and much of the rest of his work is certainly the harshest and most relentless lyric utterance in the history of a highly rationalized and convention-bound tradition. Jamie Montali, the greatest 20th century continuator and interpreter of this tradition, whose own radicalism was much more internal and rationalized, liked to repeat the dictum of the Baroque conservative poet Tommaso Cheva that poetry is a dream dreamed in the presence of reason. But this balance, so strongly adhered to in Italian letters, is wildly off in Campana. For him, the dream, the nightmare, is virtually everything. To a reader who comes to Campana's work fresh, it seems to me that what stands out above all is its helpless obsessiveness, its evasive centering on the sexual act and on the strangeness, the irreducible otherness of woman, seen not as another kind of human, but as an almost monolithic fact of nature. There are no characters other than the preceding I in Campana, only apparitions, figures, chimeras, all of them female. Campanas is an atmosphere of heat and fire, of ancient primordialness. Aspects of symbolist painting come to mind, yet there's also a sense of Mediterranean openness in nature, a feeling of location which is missing in northern artists. Much as the world is other, Campanas native place in it is very strongly felt. As with so many poets and artists of his culture, Campanas landscape is so much a part of his understanding of his character that it comes to represent his own state of mind. Campana's portrayal of himself as a lone traveler in a land of eerie Leonardine lakes and caves and decurican squares, his mystic nightmare of chaos, his sense of himself as both Orphic priest perpetrator and Orphic Christian victim, is a distilled, intensified version of modern existential anxiousness. His artfully raw and eerily beautiful presentation of his dislocation answers to our psychologically overeducated, even prurient hunger for real data, for the pure, unadulterated, uncleaned up expression of feeling.
uh, have been writing dance criticism for the Three Penny Review for several years. Quite loyal, she gives me something I would say about once every six months, and if I don't get my once every six months, I call up and agitate. <laughs> um, but she also writes dance criticism for The Nation, Dance Magazine, occasionally Vanity Fair. Um, I once had, on one of my visits to New York, I went to the New York City Ballet, and there she had written the program notes, I mean, she's everywhere. <laughs> and I think she really is about the best dance critic writing now, and I'm delighted to have her on the Free Penny Review.
and wants large philosophical approaches that might be um, similarly applied in exactly the same way to visual arts or to theater or whatever. Um, another magazine wants you to write professionally and practically. Um, uh, what did the costumes look like? Uh, what was the audience ethnic diversity? What, um, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just that so few places want you to write about the whole enchilada. One of them is the Three Penny Review. And um, Wendy Lesser is a benevolent despot, and she's the person who, to whom one addresses a letter at midnight about something wonderful. It happens that the Three Penny Review tends to focus on books more than on performances. Books are much more, have much more stable personalities than performances. But books are like the adored parent. They're always there. You creep up on them from another room. The type doesn't really change around very much. You sort of know their identities. Um, that's not true of dancing. Dancing is more adolescent. Um, it's always changing. You never know what it's going to be. I think that's part of the thrill of it. So um, all of that said, I, I find it an extraordinary privilege to write for a place that gives you space, that is actually interested in everything, that um, and that is edited by one person who has likes and dislikes that are very interesting and very Catholic. Um, I'm going to read from um, the beginning of a piece I wrote about Fred Astaire. The occasion was John Mueller's book, Astaire Dancing, the musical films, and it's a section on perfection, which um, is one, for a dancer, is one of the major issues. Dancers will casually speak about working for perfection as if we all understood exactly what that meant, like the sight of shooting stars in August or the taste of cold cherry jello on a feverish tongue. Of course, anyone who's taken a ballet class has ideas on the matter, and a democratic matter it is. I've seen perfectly terrible aspirants rehearse at bar with a concentration of geniuses, and have heard them complimented for a perfect this or that by people I consider geniuses but now we've strayed into the psychic jungle of taste and emotions. Perfection belongs to a stringent polar climate. It's the objective, the standard of extremity, and it resists analysis. Indeed, it defies analysis. It's a condition so simple, so integrated, that it can't be cracked open to be fully known and thus vulnerable to abandonment. To examine it adequately, the analyst must find a flaw which will permit him to worry the completeness into parts. He must show how the simple thing is the product of complex and often paradoxical forces, not something common, but rare, even unique. He must prize from the notion that one can unthinkingly understand what one esteems, and to what end, so that in the midst of enchantment, we should be aware of the rejected options pricking their ongoing measure under the sweep of the moment, so that we should hear the larger, imperfect story of the process by which perfection that most unnatural and civilized of ideals comes to be. Perhaps because of its associations with grace and the spirit, perfection has become yoked in many minds with philosophy and symbolism, with literary profundity, rather than with freshness, lightness, fluidity, spontaneity, the attributes characteristic of profound dancing. You think that as one ages and thickens, one would understand how deeply and keenly such qualities would be seated in the soul 
And yet non-dancers are consistently taken aback to discover, for example, that dancers of every stylistic persuasion cite Fred Astaire as our greatest male dancer of our time. If I had to pick one of his virtues as the most important in his rise to the top, writes Margot Fontaine in The Magic of Dance, I would choose his sense of perfection. It shines through all his work. There was never a trace of effort, and that is because he had devoted infinite patience to rehearsing and perfecting every detail. His technique is astounding, yet everything is accomplished with the air of someone sauntering through the park on spring morning. Pasteur himself has underscored this characteristic being unanalyzable. Um, when you come to the evolution of the dance, history, and philosophy, he writes at the end of his autobiography, Steps in Time, I know as much about that as I do about how a television tube produces a picture, which is absolutely nothing. I don't know how it started, and I don't want to know. I have no desire to prove anything by it. I have never used it as an outlet or a means of expressing myself. I just dance. Well, says John Mueller in the stair dancing, you can say that, though we don't quite believe it. For a stair, writes Mueller, artistry is something that just happens. But it is central to the contention of Mueller's book that a stair just happens to have created a large body of works of the highest artistic value that he is one of the greatest dancers and choreographers who ever lived, that he is one of the master artists of the century. Mueller goes on to cite Balanchine's comparison of Stair and Bach. And the comparison is, he is like Bach, who in his time had a great concentration of ability, essence, knowledge, a spread of music, and himself compares a Stair to Mozart. These aren't effusive compliments. They're intended as point-for-point comparisons of technique and temperament. I agree with them, too, and yet they don't seem exactly right. One issue, I think, is effort. As Fontaine noted, Astaire made great efforts to look effortless, but everything we know about Bach and Mozart suggests that the act of composition was not an arduous matter for them, that the thinking which led to their music was done prior to the music's making. The same might be said for Balanchine. Dancing did not pour out finish from Astaire, and he didn't enjoy the bravado of the nervous improviser. Mueller chronicles his extensive rehearsals, and then it goes on. Just they rehearsed. They there were six weeks of rehearsals um, with a stand-in dancer. They rehearsals with, with Ginger Rogers. They rehearsals with Rogers wearing a mock dress, and then um, on and on. small, weary figure with a towel around his neck suddenly appeared out of the giant huge sound stages. It was Fred. He came over to me, threw a heavy arm around my shoulder and said, Oh, Alan, why doesn't someone tell me I cannot dance? Maybe, here's the writer's address, if you could write him, maybe. 
publish it. This is a guy who will not send out his work. And you know, getting things out of him was like drawing teeth at the beginning. But I got him to give poems to the magazine, and I got him to write essays for it. And then, since then, he's written for Grand Street. He wrote a very interesting article about David Byrd, the talking head. He's, he's written for Sulphur on Voodoo, wasn't For The Nation, uh, he, was a, he has been an editor of Rock and Roll Confidential, written a lot of interesting material on rock music. So quite a talented and various guy. If you can get him to give you the stuff, Daniel Wolf. <laughs>
doesn't seem to realize the social implications of preservation for its own sake. Barry's vision of the Amish, or of the mountain farmers of Peru, another of his ideals, is of a single class, single race community, where everyone believes in what he calls a sexual division of labor, in monogamy, and in, if not a Christian God, then a God with Christian values. As John Schover points out in his book on rural life in the United States, first majority, last minority, that description certainly fits the South Central states, where in 1850, only 2% of the citizens were foreign born. He goes on to show that this idyllic scene had enormous class difference, differences. An aristocracy of 4,000 families lived on the best lands and received three quarters of returns from annual exports. Two thirds of the white people in the South were locked into commercial subservience. He argues that it was only the presence of a large black population that united the whites and prevented them from becoming conscious of class differences. Because Barry is a radical thinker, because he wants to challenge the most basic assumptions beneath present day economics, and because his method is to extrapolate from his own life, he ends up making some broad generalizations in the heat of the battle. His intention, like much of the ecology movements, is to take on the monolithic progress. The strength of Barry's writings, and he's trying to do that in a practical way, by joining the realities of farm life with a theoretical ecological position. Still, he ends up addressing an aristocracy. Hard as Barry tries to make organic and subsistence farming seem realistic, the average farmer is too deep in debt to consider them, and the price of good land prevents former farmers from returning. Barry's audience is people who can afford to keep things as they were, to preserve the economic systems as well as the land and water. Barry has written that the problem of world hunger cannot be solved until it is understood and dealt with by local people as a multitude of local problems of ecology, agriculture, and culture. Well, if the ecology movement really wants that kind of popular change, it could do worse than listen to country music. If Barry cocked his ear towards the transistor radio to hear the voice of a displaced rural people, as angry as he is at the forces that have overwhelmed them, are we rolling downhill, asks Merle, like a snowball heading for hell? The organic farmer outside of Boston, the unemployed steel worker in Pittsburgh, the farmer auctioning off his Iowa farm all seem to agree that we are. So does the conservationist. The solution isn't to go back, but to use the momentum of the past to roll up the next more equitable peak. For the ecology movement to make that solution more than just a metaphor, it needs to speak to and listen to the people who will do the work. Um, yeah, a friend of mine had a poem on his piano. And the next thing I knew, I got a letter from somebody called Wendy Lester in California, who said, could, could I publish this? I'm not going to say no to that. It sounds wonderful. And she published it, and I was delighted. It looked like a good magazine. I, you know, I had a theory that this was going to be a real crazed magazine if they, if they wanted my poem on someone's piano. And the fact that it came on you know, clean paper and nicely printed, I was very impressed by it. And then I got a letter from her that was addressed to three penny review writers and had a list of books that you could write about if you wanted to. And suddenly I was a three penny review writer. <laughs> And enough of you know about editors in the world that that doesn't happen often. Normally, you're just whoever submits your pieces. So I said, sure, I'll 
Wendell Berry, I, you know, I admire Wendell Berry and I want to give him help. Can I do that in a piece? She said, well, I won't guarantee I'll publish it. You can do it. And I sent it to her and she published it. And it's been going on like that since then. Um, I don't have much to say. These panelists have done more eloquently than I can. I just want to say that I don't think Wendy Lesser is very special. Um, I, I think, should I go on or should I just leave it here? I, you know, I think what she has is a real, uh, part of what I was trying to get at in this piece, a real sort of general taste for what good writing and good thinking is. And, and it's not anything rarefied, uh, in my opinion, and it seems to me hers from the magazine she's putting out. And that's part of what pleases me a lot that something like country music can have a voice in your magazine uh, as well as a guy in poetry um, or whatever else she thinks is intelligently written about and would concern you and me, not the literary person in the sky. So I'm pleased to be associated with it. Some function. They have to really offer. 
but at least for the literary community. And that is not so easy to do. I mean, there are not that many gaps. Um, it, it's very, very difficult thing. I don't think they can be created by just putting them out or even getting a, a doctor, as some people do, who have a lot of money. It takes a while. On the other hand, they are the picture in some way, the editor or editor. So if you have more than one editor, there must be a kind of um, some sort of hype they share. Well, I'm looking back at the old magazines and so on, and the magazines today, and there cannot be too many memory magazines. There can't be too many places to publish. But on the other hand, we just don't want to cut down trees for nothing. And, uh, so I don't know. Uh, I think Wendy's Magazine, and there are certain magazines that do fill a need, you might say. Um, like, well, what? I mean, a need that uh, no one else does. Maybe Parnassus, which prints very long critical reviews on poetry that are not likely to appear every, anywhere else. Uh, and they're not all uh, absolutely uh, swinging, but they are good. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't bad, that, but that, that is a very special sort of thing. When the magazine, the Three Penny Review, has many of the same writers, many of the same things that you might find in Glenn Street or Granta in England or Although they're all a little different, I, I don't know really how to characterize them. Hers is very small, I wish it were longer. And you do, because it turns out that these that are supported by universities are rather heavy, hefty, rather. They may be heavy at times too, but they're also hefty. And hers is small, I'm much more, I guess it's a sort of tabloid type, all coming out of the early 70s, being able to put this out. You couldn't do that before. I don't know what the revolution that accompanied the 60s revolution made it possible to have things like this. Well, this is, in some way, a picture of not only of Wendy's case, but of her dedication and of keeping on with this magazine, and then somehow making one read it. You have to go on. You cannot create a magazine by fiat. It must go on and somehow find your place and find your voice, which I think she's done. Uh, and it's a hard thing to do in a, what you might call a general literary magazine, her stories, poems, essays, and so on, but just a picture of what we've had tonight, uh, the different things here, no stories and no poems, and, and it doesn't happen that way, but the uh, sort of personal memoirs, and then <laughs> I've read that in several places, or, or for some reason I've read that Meryl Tiger and Wendell Berry, and I think Wendell Berry really 
Wendell there is a wonderful writer, but I was delighted to bring that to Wall Street just to take his out. <laughs> He's from my original state, and he is a wonderful pure writer, but you get a certain pleasure. <laughs> you know, somebody who's very carefully doing the soil. <laughs>
So I did this. I had something that was the most pleasant. Three months of my life. <laughs> I, tried, I hope it's probably the most pleasant to read. I to I'll read you a little bit of it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, this is the last issue, so everybody can well, here it is. Gertrude Stein, in the midst of her unbinding cheerfulness and confidence, she can be a pitiless companion for the reader. Insomniac rhythms and melodious drummings. She likes to tell you what you know and to tell it again, and sometimes to let up for a bit only to tell you once more. In quotation. To know all kinds of ways then to make men and women. One must know all the ways some are like others of them, are different from others of them, so then there comes to come to be kinds of them. <laughs> Her writing, T.S. Eliot once said, has a quote has a kitchen with a saxophone. <laughs> I wake up feeling I must have made that Gradual ascent. It 
wisdom combined with a certain laziness and insolence. It was her genius to make the two work together like a machine, a wondrous contraption, something futuristic and patented for her use. She wrote her Cambridge lecture at the height of her fame while waiting for her car to be fixed. She sat down on the fender of another car and waiting around wrote composition as explanation. In that, she says, everything is the same except composition. And as composition is different, and always going to be different, everything is not the same.
Um, some were very slightly published. I'll, I'll speak in the present tense if I can. Oh, sorry. How did I help young writers, and were they published or unpublished when I first wrote? <coughs> um, right now, I, I am making a special push to get fiction by young and unpublished writers. It was sort of an area that I had that lag. I, all my connections were with old and published fiction writers, and um, and I had taken work from them, and I would occasionally take unsolicited manuscripts, but very occasionally. But I took on a former student of mine to help me read manuscripts, a guy in his 20s, and he has an eye for work of that age group, I think, and so he would point out things to me, and I would go back and give him another read. And, and as a result of that, the next issue of the magazine has three stories um, two of the writers have never been published before. This is their first publication. And one of them has been published in only a few places, maybe magazines you've never even heard of. One of them being a magazine called Kingfisher in Berkeley, published by my assistant, who started the magazine herself. Continues to work for me and publishes her own. This is, you know, proliferation happens all the time. So, and I, I won't even give you these three writers' names. You really won't ever have heard of them. And they may go nowhere. I mean, I like to think that I'm. Uh, here's another example. This is not a young writer, but there's a woman who lives in Arkansas who was discovered by one of my writers who lives down there and uh, teaches at the University of Arkansas. And he sent her home to me. He said, this, this is the Emily Dickinson of Arkansas. She writes these poems. She never shows them to anybody. They are just lost. Her name is Glenda Schrock. Well, she doesn't write very much. So I published about four of her poems. And that exhausted a lot of the supply. And she will not go on to be a major poet that you have heard of in your lifetimes because she doesn't have the publicity material to do it. She doesn't have, you know, to make it into a book, or she doesn't have contact, she doesn't have anything. So the three thing that there's not going to get credit in the kind of publicity realm of the sky for, for promoting this woman's career, but I feel it is very important that we publish. And, and various other writers who who did not go on to make it big necessarily, but who are are obscure and um, talented nonetheless. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, do you want to talk at all about what magazines you like that are coming out of New York or any other place? Sure, I will. There's always, do I want to talk about what magazines I like coming out of New York or any other place? There's always the risk of this that you leave out your best friend's Uh, 
Sarah Soler, I can't remember her name. Uh, she's from India, and she wrote a memoir in a recent issue of Rare Again, I wrote a letter saying that I really love that piece and that's wonderful. And I, I think I've done that to several other. Paul Robinson wrote something on Freud, the feminist. I thought it was quite interesting. I wrote him a long letter. So that it's very stimulating, that again. Um, I think Southwest Review, under its new editor, who's been with it for about three years, I don't know how long it's been, is, is quite interesting now and good and adventurous. Um, what else do I like? I like some commercial magazines. I think the New Republic's art section is interesting, the back of the book of the New Republic. Um, I think sometimes pieces in the Boston Review are interesting. That's not a course magazine. I, I sometimes find that interesting. I, I'm running out. I think. Any more questions? Yes. You said, or I think you said, that you get very few unsolicited magazines from young, unpublished people. What about in general? Do you get many unsolicited? Mm -hmm. The question is, so you're so the ten please listen to your money. You said what you solicited. Right. It's a real labor. Yeah. Things vary. There are actually several categories in the show, but first I should answer correctly. She asked me about does uh, much come in that's unsolicited, not just from young writers. In fact, that a lot comes in that's unsolicited from young writers as well. It's just that I didn't have the capacity to take it into well before I hired this assistant. But I, um, I think we get about 30 manuscripts a week, or 30 envelopes a week, some of which have several manuscripts in them. So I read all of those. And of those, I take about one story or one poem a week, max. No, it can't even be that much, maybe every two weeks. I accept something from the unsolicited file. Sometimes it's a story, more often it's a poem. We publish eight or nine poems in each issue and only two or three stories. Now, of the material that's published in the magazine, a very small portion of it, most of it by writers at this table and a few of you I see out in the audience who are my regular writers, Jay Novick, who's theater editor, and uh, some others of you who are here who I've actually solicited articles from, those of you are the rare ones that I say, I want you to write on something. When are you going to get it to me? What's it going to be about? Mostly, I sit there and things come in, not necessarily from strangers. The large middle ground is from people who I either have met or have some knowledge of, some corresponding knowledge or some acquaintance with, but I don't know that they're going to send me an article. And then at some point, they come up with this article and it seems appropriate for everything, perhaps inappropriate for anywhere else. And they send it to me. And that's that's what a lot of the material in the three penny review is. Neither wholly solicited nor wholly unsolicited. Yeah. I'd like to ask Mrs. Hartwick why um, what possessed you to write when you have so many outlets for your writing, what possessed you to write for some magazine? What possessed me to do like this particular reason? Oh, she asked me to. <laughs> 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 to write something. And I wanted, uh, I, I wanted to do it, um, you know, for this magazine. I kept saying, I wanted to do it, but I said, I will do it. For her. Of course, I guess I wanted to do it. I wasn't planning to try. <laughs> but I guess, uh, 